Hello and welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones. And I'm your co-host, Clara Takefield. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and final year law students who are very passionate about feminism and the law. Today on the podcast, we have Catherine James, Senior Lecturer at the Melbourne Law School, Carlton, Victoria, Australia, and an Australian Research Council Discovery Early Career Research Fellow. Would you please introduce yourself? Hello, Clara. And greetings from Melbourne, um, where I'm on the lands of the traditional owners of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people. Um, thanks for having me on your show. I'm a legal scholar, as you say. I'm a senior lecturer at the Melbourne Law School and also an ARC Discovery Research Fellow. My particular area of research is in tax law and policy, which usually I can see the the, the life force draining out of your uh, face immediately. But in particular, I'm interested in questions of how tax policy affects justice and particularly distributive justice or economic justice. And so really tax is a mirror or an influence on the type of society that we want. And so that's my particular interest. Um, so thanks for having me on your show. Thank you for joining us. And actually that does sound really interesting given how um, different tax brackets are created and that kind of thing. That would be a whole other conversation, but I would love to have that with you someday. Um, but moving on to the purpose of today's interview, you recently published an article that was titled Removal of the Tampon Tax, a Costless or Pyrrhic Victory. And in this article, you discuss the tampon tax removal in Australia and the implication of women's rights, including menstrual rights, and the fact that achieving such a change in taxation was not without consequences. So could you please expand on the impacts of the removal of the tax, which are often hidden to the wider world? Yeah, sure. So in Australia, we removed the, the sales tax from tampon, which in Australia is called the goods and services tax, which I'll refer to as the GST. In the UK, it's called the value added tax. And in the United States, it's generally some form of retail sales tax. But in Australia, we removed the sales tax for menstrual products from starting the 1st of January 2019. And most people, and I think women in particular, regard this as an unequivocal success. In fact, the only time anyone is interested in what I, I do research is generally if they're a woman, they'll be like, oh, okay, well, I, I think it was an outrage that they applied the sales tax to tampons and it's great that they moved it. And then I usually destroy any social capital that I have because I say, well, yeah, I'm not 100% sure. Because, I mean, I think... I was one of a handful of what I might term feminist tax scholars who, in my case, was either unmoved by the campaign or in other cases were opposed to the campaign. And I think while the campaign had a certain superficial appeal, especially when real world, world comparisons were made between the fact that we don't tax condoms, but we fact that but that we tax uh, tampons. I was frustrated that so much attention was paid to an issue which to me seemed marginal in the overall scheme of distributive justice and particularly economic justice for women and other marginalised groups and also risked contributing to the white anting of the tax system which ultimately favours mostly rich, mostly male, mostly white vested interests and I, I can expand on that a bit later. But I did also wonder if my ambivalence was a part of my own capture to a type of normative or theoretical thinking in my own discipline, which generally says that usually better to, to tax on a broad base, be it what people spend their money on or how they earn their money, and then fund decent public 
services. And that was that's really where I think most of the kind of sympathetic criticisms of the campaign were coming from. Those feminist tax scholars were saying, well, look, if we're really concerned about access to menstrual products, rather than carve out the tax base, let's tax properly, fully, right across the bases and fund these products, you know, have universal access. That's fascinating. Thank you for that overview um, and that really clear um, introduction about the removal of the tampon tax. Um, so as you say, the removal of the tampon tax in Australia occurred because of the removal of the goods and services tax on menstrual products. Um, so why do you think such a decision was made? Um, and would you say that it might have been influenced by other countries who might have taken similar steps? Or was it potentially more of a sort of wake up call from governments in light of the discrimination that women um, experience when purchasing or using these products? Yeah, so it was pure political pressure and it was definitely influenced by campaigns elsewhere. I was at recently at a, a, a menstrual justice symposium where they referred to 2015 as the year of the menstruator or something like that. But I think there was, in Australia, it was a very similar to campaign to, to what has occurred in other similar jurisdictions, which is generally a young woman realises that a sales tax applies to menstrual products. She's outraged. She starts an online petition. It's get, it gets momentum. Uh, and in the case of Australia, this particular young woman also kind of lampooned our national treasurer, who's responsible for tax policy in Australia, on, on, on a political talk show and embarrassed him into kind of agreeing to look into it. And this time it actually achieved change. So it was definitely buoyed by the momentum of other campaigns elsewhere. Thank you for that. Um, so you also identify the removal of the tampon tax um, that may have been a Pyrrhic victory because of the costs involved, which many are unaware of. So in your opinion, were the costs involved for the removal of the tampon tax greater than the cost of the tampon tax in Australia? Or is it is it even possible to compare both values? Uh, not if we just reduce it down to numbers. Um, so, you know, so if, in terms of revenue, for example, if we, it was estimated that removing the sales tax from menstrual products in Australia would cost something in the order of 30 to $50 million per year. And in Australia, our particular sales tax raises about $65 billion per year. So we're really talking a minimal sum in terms of uh, in terms of revenue foregone, you know, we're not we're not going to fund massive essential services on thirty to fifty million dollars a year. Um, but I, I, what I do caution against is just regarding the campaign as an unequivocal success because there are certain risks and costs with the way it was framed. And so, if it's okay with you guys, I might just kind of step through the arguments here because it will take a bit of kind of exposition to to do this. Uh, so, as I said, most people, I, I, I say how you regard the campaign depends on how broad you set your parameters for measuring it. So on a very narrow measurement, and you can take quite an optimistic view and say the campaign's an unequivocal success. You know, we've removed an unjust tax from a class of product, which is purchased almost exclusively by or for women at a minimal cost to revenue. And in the process, we've brought attention to women's bodies, women's rights and menstrual rights. And so in many ways, the campaign contributes to the core feminist concern of making public those issues that are traditionally confined to the private domain because of their association with women and women's bodies. And I should say, use the term women to denote the main social category 
the, the social group that I'm focused on here, because that's mainly the way the, the tax debate was framed, but I acknowledge that women are not the only menstruators and not all women menstruate, but that, that's the main social group that I'm focused, focused on in the analysis here. And so, so one commentator in Australia just remarked, even just making male, male politicians talk about menstruation in public is an achievement in itself. Okay, so that that is kind of the nature of the the um, the, the optimistic camp uh, view of the campaign. Um, but as you would undoubtedly be aware, the, the menstrual rights campaign is part of it involves um, removing menstrual stigma, and I think we should we shouldn't just assume that making male politicians talk about the fact that women menstruate is automatically destigmatizing, nor is simply removing the tax, a sales tax from menstrual product, products destigmatizing. It's good to have awareness raising, but that alone doesn't mean it's destigmatizing. And really, I think the claim that, you know, the benefits of removing the sales tax from menstrual products um, is that the, the tax itself is stigmatizing. Whereas we know the stigma is the product of a, a much broader range of social forces. And to just to give an example of this, um, so I mentioned that the campaign in Australia was supported by you know, almost 100,000 people who signed an online petition. But then when it got to the point once the government did act and was taking submissions on how to draft the exclusion. So what menstrual products would be included in the definition and therefore no longer subject to sales tax and what menstrual products would be excluded from the definition and therefore still subject to sales tax. By that stage, there was only 16 submissions from the public. Most of them were kind of corporate submissions who were who kind of argued about where to draw the line. You know, we should include panty liners and not just pads and stuff like that. But one major supermarket in Australia went one step further and said, well, we should also include in the exclusion feminine hygiene products like um, gels, deodorant, powders, because they eliminate odours, I quote, eliminate odours and promote freshness in the vaginal area. And thankfully, the submission didn't get up. But you can see the dangers, firstly, of aligning with corporate interests on a, on a campaign, because they're quite keen to get some social capital and, and, and also get a tax break, which helps them sell more products and then abandoning the field to let them fill in the detail. And as you can see, the, there's nothing destigmatizing about their submission here, it's stigmatizing. Um, so, so I think we shouldn't just assume that removing the tax alone is destigmatizing. Um, I think the next point to say is the, the campaign itself is incomplete and not without costs. And so there's a couple of Australian scholars, Beth Steele and, uh, sorry, Beth Goldblatt and Linda Steele, who say that when we judge whether or not a law reform campaign is successful in terms of achieving menstrual justice, we should assess it by reference to whether it leaves structural justices intact, or structural injustices intact, I should say. And I really think that the tampon tax campaign probably fails on this measure because by focusing on a very narrow issue, a kind of equal treatment issue of removing the sales tax from menstrual products, it ignores all the underlying economic and political structures that subordinate women and other marginalised groups. 
And so the government at the time is able to appear benevolent and just. And at the time they claimed that millions of women right across the nation will be very thankful for us removing the, the sales tax on tampons, while at the same time, you know, presiding over tax and transfer policies, which had a can have at times an, an almost penal impact on women. You know, so for example, the highest tax group in Australia is women returning to work after giving birth. Um, because a combination of having ta getting taxed on their income and the withdrawal of their welfare benefits means their effective tax rate is something like 70%. And so the government can look like it's doing something but still do nothing on all the other areas where, which subordinate women. And so the, the, the final thing to say, and probably the most controversial thing to say, is I think the tampon tax campaign also not just risks leaving structural injustices intact, but actually risks magnifying them. And so this argument just requires a bit of explaining because it actually goes to how the theoretical case for removing the tampon tax is made. So I'll just kind of step you through the, the arguments if that's okay. Um, so, so I think the claim that the tampon tax is bad is based on one that it's inherently discriminatory. And so probably the strongest articulation of the claim is that only women menstruate. Therefore, any tax on this essential function is inherently discriminatory because it's a tax that can only fall on women, but never on men. And then once you accept this and that this is a form of gender discrimination, repeal should follow, particularly in a system uh, where constitutional um, protections prevent discrimination, which we don't have in Australia, but which they do have in jurisdictions such as the United States. So I think that's the strongest articulation of the argument. Um, but for me, the problems with this argument is that it's a sales tax, that the tax is not a tax on menstruation per se, it's a tax on menstrual products sold in the marketplace. And so while menstruation is undoubtedly an essential function, the expenditure of money in a marketplace is, is not natural, it's artificial, it's conventional. Um, and so the market here kind of mediates different, different, different needs, different stuff going on. And I think once you appreciate that the market is, is mediating these things, it's, it's difficult to say that market-based transactions are not properly the subject of a state's taxing power. There's a couple of political philosophers, Liam Murphy and Todd Nagel, who basically say property laws and tax laws are all part of the way we just determine who gets to have what in our society. They're all part of the system for saying who, who gets to have what and who pays for what, at what cost. And I think once we clarify that the proper subject of the campaign is not menstruation per se, but attacks on menstrual products sold in a marketplace, it becomes a bit tricky to know who benefits who benefits from the tax. You know, so to take a traditionally sexist example, if uh, menstrual products are funded by a male breadwinner in a household, who gets the economic benefits of the removal of the tax? Because feminist scholars for many decades have said we shouldn't assume that economic benefits and particularly tax concessions are shared equitably in a household. But I think most importantly, the Australian feminist Anne Summers said that if, if menstrual products are so essential, if they're so akin to a basic right, then why leave it, leave it to the vagaries of the marketplace? Why don't we 
fund these products as universally important public goods. And, and as I said, I think that's where those kind of sympathetic feminist tax critiques kicked in. I think though the problem with these critiques is that we live in a real world which is kind of messy and most sales taxes already have exemptions and you know when you're exempting condoms but not tampons I think you can't you can't you can't maintain the line that we should tax tampons um, but not tax condoms so I think really the theoretical case only gets gets up because it's so messy in the real world but <laughs> now my final point is that the problem with the theoretical framing is that it by by arguing that rights are somehow pre-existing or inviable and not properly the subject of the, the taxing power of the state, you're adopting the same anti-tax playbook as you know most anti-tax kind of anti-government campaigns. Um, here, the basis is the rights we're wanting to protect are somehow kind of essential natural rights um, based on essential functions. But in the case of the rich, it's generally economic or property rights that they're wanting to protect. And so the US scholar um, Suzanne Herman observes of tampon tax campaigns um, in the United States, including one in Wyoming, that conservative anti-tax groups and legislators aligned with feminist activists and she observes that reform efforts for tampon tax repeal pick up more and more supporters without losing any ground. But I really disagree because I think, although it might be convenient to form an alliance with anti-tax campaigners and anti-government um, politicians on one fleeting mutual issue of self-interest, it's really done at the risk of eroding support for the types of collective action we need to fund the essential services which are essential to women's and other marginalised groups' economic emancipation, be it you know, funding public health, public education, which includes access to, to menstrual products. So that was a very long explanation, but hopefully it stepped you through, stepped you through the claim, which is why, you know, at best I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ambivalent. You know, I don't think it's going to, I don't think the world is going to end, but I think if we do want this to be the basis for, you know, further proper um, social change that actually does something about women's economic subordination, then we have to have a bit of a more realistic assessment of, of the costs of the way the campaign was framed. Yeah, absolutely. That was a really thorough um, answer to that question. Um, so you, you mentioned earlier that there was um, a supermarket that kind of went went further and said that, that, that you know, maybe they should um, remove the tax from not just tampons and pads, but also um, panty liners and then powders and gels and those kinds of things and kind of expanded onto other products. And that like the question then becomes, where do you draw the line? So where do you think the line should be drawn? Because hypothetically then maybe, maybe we should remove the tax from like all personal care products. Like for example, toothbrushes, because we know that uh, people from very low socioeconomic backgrounds often can't afford to see the dentist and that causes health problems. So where, where do you think the line should be drawn in that, in that situation? Well, I think, I mean, that, that's really, that, the, the, the line that was held by the Australian government and by P and by the opponents of the um, the campaign to remove the sales tax on tampons is exactly your question. It's saying we don't want to open the floodgates because, you know, when you say that tampons are essential, then children's books are essential and clothing's essential and so on and so forth. But the thing is, I mean, in Australia, it didn't open the floodgates. You know, uh, once we excluded menstrual products, then we haven't excluded anything since then. 
Um, there is a there is a, a scholar in the in the UK who who argues that it had more of an effect in the UK, Rita Delaferia, but I'll let you know she she can speak to that argument. But um, but I think you know in terms of and and often the and often the campaign against the removal of the tampon tax is things like well you know we should exempt you know razors if because I have to shave every day um, th those type of things and I think you know that that's where it's kind of difficult to prosecute the line in terms of the actual drawing of the line here most of the so most of the corporate interests argued for including panty liners in the exclusion. And I was actually okay with that because because it's defensible. Like the menstrual cycle isn't just when you bleed; it's across the whole cycle, and that includes vaginal discharge. It's it's not just blood, and so that seemed to me pretty fine. And 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 I didn't really have a problem with that. I think where I had a problem was when we start to you know um, try and introduce things that have no scientific basis for inclusion, such a, and that are stigmatizing. Um, so in the in that narrow case of menstrual products, I think that's where I I would have drawn the line exactly where the government ended up drawing the line. But yeah, I think that's that that's the you know I think that's the point. You know when we 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 start just focusing on tax exclusions as the way to address problems, you can only get so far. And ultimately, you do need a robust source of revenue. And so if we do care about you know dental hygiene is so important because you can tell someone's class and social circumstance by their face. And and you know it, it and you know you need robust revenue to fund public universal access to these things, and that's relevant to menstruation too because um, you know the ability to access public toilets if you're homeless is key to managing menstruation, um, and particularly you know access to basic sanitation in developing countries is key to menstrual rights. So so yeah, I think you're not going to solve these problems just through excluding exclusions to the tax base. Thank you for that clarification. Um, and yeah, I agree. Uh, removing, you know, the taxation on, on um, period products is obviously a step, but that's not going to solve the entire problem, um, as you say. So in terms of the law, um, what other legal changes are you hoping might happen, are you anticipating might happen in Australia and globally following the removal of the tampon tax? Yeah, so I think, I just think, I mean, from a legal perspective, removing the tax was really, that, that wasn't the issue in Australia, it was the political issue. Um, from a legal perspective, it just required a declaration from our health minister. And once they worked out the scope of the exclusion, it was done and that's it. Um, I think for me, where the real action um, lies, as you might've guessed, is firstly in taking stock of this campaign and then taking seriously uh, the calls to, to look at how our tax and transfer system. So transfer is, you know, what we spend our money on. Um, it might, it might be welfare payments or it might be other forms of social support. But the way tax and transfer systems subordinate women and other marginalised groups, you know, to do a real stock take of that, to highlight that. I mean, feminist tax scholars have been doing this since um, for at least half a century, and we've achieved some but not much progress on it. And so there's a, um, a there's a feminist tax scholar, Orsa Gunnarsson, who argues that looking at the concessional tax treatment of trusts, capital income, capital gains, wealth, should all be the, the proper subject of feminist concern and feminist activism. Because, you know, the benefits accrue to a, a small, narrow elite at, at the expense of everyone else, because it, it, it erodes the, the funding for the 
for our social services that we all benefit from, particularly marginalised groups. So I think that's that's where I'd like to see things moving, you know, moving towards that that broader examination. Yeah, thank thank you for that. And I think I think you're absolutely right. I think um, more feminist tax analysis is needed in terms of things like capital gains because I mean traditionally it was the wealthiest people making the laws that were protecting other wealthy people, and that obviously has a negative impact on more marginalized communities. Um, in the realm of taxes on menstrual products and discrimina discrimination against women or stigmatize stigmatization of women as a result, what other areas, and I, I mean, you just, you just named a few, but what other areas do you think need addressing in Australia and globally? Again, I, I just kind of come back to the point that, that it, it, you need to look across all the tax bases because, um, so for example, if you're funding the purchase, a, a colleague of mine in Australia, who's a feminist tax scholar, Miranda Stewart, basically said that that so the income tax is also indirectly a tax on menstrual products because you pay tax on your income and then that reduces your income and then you've got to go and buy your menstrual products with it. So if women, for example, as I in that in that um, example I gave earlier with caregiving responsibilities of, of you know paying the highest rate of tax amongst all groups in society, then that's something we need to look at. We need to look at all the the interaction of these trans tax and transfer policies, which effectively mean, you know, the groups that shouldn't be paying the highest rates of tax are paying, uh, 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 we can rectify that, you know, because the groups that should be paying the highest rates of tax are the people that earn the most, that have the most in terms of wealth and earn the most in terms of income. Uh, in terms of what should be done in terms of menstrual justice and, and menstrual rights, and obviously Scotland's held up as an example of, um, you know, that, that move from, to, towards just public provision. And we have seen that occur in Australia as well. So a number of kind of local government, you know, we're a federal system in Australia, so we have kind of state governments as well. Um, some have moved to provide um, free menstrual products in schools, for example. And most recently in the state where I reside, which is the state of Victoria, our uh, state government announced at the recent election that they would provide vending machines for menstrual products. So something like, I think 1,500 vending machines across you know, various public places. But interestingly, that announcement provoked an enormous backlash, uh, particularly in the conservative media, along those lines that, that you articulated, Courtney. You know, well, uh, well, if that's so important, you know, why aren't they providing us houses, you know, um, you know kind of making all those those comparisons. And it, yeah, it really did trigger quite a vitriolic backlash, which again, just goes to the point that the 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 need to address stigma remains um, because the, that that's pretty deep seated. Uh, and so, and of course, I, I don't want to speak for other jurisdictions, you know, but the but, but in Australia, we're relatively fortunate, we've still got that stigma, but we have basic sanitation and decent facilities. And, if, and, and so I think, you know, the need is, you might focus on, you know, one particular thing to get a bit of bit of interest, a bit of traction, which I guess is the success of the tampon tax campaigns. But it really has to be as a starting point for looking at all these structural things, which, 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 which cause stigma, which, you know, cause issues in terms of access to, to basic menstrual products. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. I do agree with you. I feel like destigmatization is definitely kind of the final step, but it's probably the most difficult one to 
to achieve because it's definitely a shift of mindset and you, you can't impose that on everyone. But at the end of the day, that is what will move society forward. Um, so yeah, thank you for that explanation. Um, in terms of free sanitary products in the UK, for instance, some schools have taken the initiative of offering free sanitary products um, and also in other public spaces um, and other countries have actually started doing so too. Um, so what do you think is the next step in terms of availability of free sanitary products? Yeah, so these are all re really, obviously, really positive moves. Um, but I think I, I think we have to look at not just free disposable sanitary products, but more sustainable ways of managing menstruation. Um, and as I said, I think we need to look at we we need to look at those kind of structural issues which affect different women's and kind of different people's ability to access appropriate management of their menstruation. So I said like. Uh, at this menstrual justice symposium, there was a US scholar there who said we have no really basic, we don't have really have basic public toilets in the US, and that you know that's an issue if you're homeless. Whereas we do in Australia, we have pretty good you know public access to public toilets. You know there are issues with managing menstruation for 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 women in prisons, for example, uh, and in other kind of harsh uh, settings. And so. Uh, and so I think you know public provision um, is great, but we do need to we do need to kind of look more broadly at at how we at how we go what what type of products what type of support because it's not just pads and tampons in a vending machine. I think it's it's proper access to safe hygienic sanitation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean earlier you mentioned sustainability in managing uh, menstruation and. Just to comment on that, I think maybe, you know, the the free provision of menstrual cups might be the, the way to go because they're they're definitely way more sustainable and and oftentimes they're, they're healthier for the people who are using them. So that that might be an option. I don't know what your thoughts are might be on that, but yeah, look, I, I don't profess I'm not I'm not a menstrual justice person of, you know, I I I so I don't want to profess expertise on an area that I'm not an expert in, but I but I think in terms of, again, at this symposium, I was at, there were some people who were expert in this area and were saying, you know, menstrual cups or, or kind of period undies are obviously more sustain sustainable. But um, again, if you don't have a safe and secure place to, to manage the menstrual cup, um, particularly for young women, they're not confident managing menstrual cups without people actually giving them some awareness of their anatomy, which is also a real issue. That's also part of stigma, just women knowing about their bodies and how they work, particularly young girls. And so I think it has to be part of a broader campaign, you know, to to, to draw attention to women's, to, to women's bodies um, uh, and to women's rights and to empower young girls in particular so that they feel confident to do this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, like you said, that that destigmatization is incredibly important. Um, I just want to thank you for joining us. If our listeners want like to learn more about your work and your research, where can they do this? Yes, yeah, so unfortunately, I'm pretty old school. I have no social media presence at all, but I do have a website connected to the University of Melbourne, and I have what's called a social science research page where most of my papers are up, but unfortunately not my tampon tax paper because that's under embargo. So that'll probably take another 12 months or so to have free access. Um, but yeah, anyone who wants to get in touch um, can just email me. My email's available on my university homepage. Brilliant. Thank you again so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.
In today's Feminist News Roundup, actress Anna Obregon is facing backlash after she revealed that she has a baby girl born via surrogacy. Spain has currently banned surrogacy but allows parents to adopt the child upon returning to the country. Also in today's News Roundup, two members of the U.S. House of Representatives, Cori Bush and Ayanna Presley, have launched the first caucus for the Equal Rights Amendment. The initiative was launched exactly 100 years after the Equal Rights Amendment was first introduced in Congress, and Representative Bush has said the caucus plans to, quote, make sure constitutional gender equality is a national priority, end quote. Finally, Iran has indicated that it is determined to enforce mandatory hijab rules and on Saturday issued an ultimatum giving the judiciary 48 hours to find ways to stop women from disobeying the mandatory hijab rules. This follows months of protests after the death of Masa Amini, who died after being detained by the morality police for allegedly improperly wearing her hijab. If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, podcasts, newsletters and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from pixabay.com. Thanks for listening.